<laughs> Pot of gold. Picture a world with no disease, no cancer, no AIDS, no non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, no pimples, no gout. Picture a world without hungry children, a world without homeless veterans lining the streets, a world without war because the people realize that they no longer needed it. Imagine a time when you could walk into a hospital, order a baby just the way you like it, Onions on the side, no problem. You want to have it with your mama's eyes and Dwayne DeRock Johnson's bone structure? Done! As quick as you can complete your payment via ThinkPay. A collab between Apple and Elon Musk. You are out the door with a fresh human child. What if we had the technology to literally rewrite the human story? What if we had access to the operating system of human existence? What if we could edit our DNA like it was a Microsoft Word document and create humans with capacities and abilities that we could only dream of? Yeah, I mean like some X-Men shit. We're talking laser eyes, breath smells like honeysuckles, and never forgets your birthday. Imagine all the good that could be done in the world with such an amazing technology. In the right hands, this power could save the world. But what about in the wrong hands? What about if bad actors and self-serving egomaniacs got a hold of this kind of power? It would only take one mistake to blow it all up. Would it even be worth the risk? We live in a house of cards that we call society, and we do everything we can to ignore its fragility. This existence on Earth is both beautifully nurturing and brutally unforgiving. One bump of the table, and the whole house falls. Genetic engineering is here to stay, and it will impact the lives of us all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Preach, robot man, preach. It's the truth, guys. It's the truth. I had a man come on my show and talk about it. And that's why we're here today. Welcome to another exciting episode of Ramble by the River. I'm your host, Jeff Nesbitt. It is Saturday, August 14th, the year of our Lord, 2021. And I want to wish a special shout out to Mr. and Mrs. Alex Mack. Let's see, I, I, don't, I don't know how you guys are going to do this, but Alex Mack, the man, is was a guest on the show. Good friend of mine. I've known him for a very long time. Alex Mack, the missus, is also a good friend of mine. I've known her for a long time, and they're getting married. They're both named Alex. One of them has a different last name right now, but pretty soon she's going to have the same last name, and we're going to have Mr. and Mrs. Alex Mack, and I'm stoked about it. Not only is it adorable... But they're both very cool people, and I think they're going to make a great couple and have a wonderful, amazing life. So I wish the happy couple the best of luck, and they're getting married today, and I'll be there. So if you're listening to this in the afternoon, I'm probably standing up there with them, watching them get married right now. So congratulations, guys. 
Okay, so today we have Mark Ryle, author of the hit book, Age Decoded. Mark joined me via Zoom, and we discussed his new book, and a lot of stuff about genetic engineering, DNA manipulation, and just all the ways it can go wrong, all the ways it can go right. Talked about curing all kinds of diseases. It was a really, really interesting conversation, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. I have always really liked dystopian literature. George Orwell has always been really cool. And Animal Farm was probably the first one I ever read. I remember skipping band class to sneak off into the auditorium so I could read Animal Farms because I was almost done with it. It was a short book. I just wanted to finish it. And honestly, <clears throat> honestly, when I read that one, I, I thought it was about animals on a farm. I really did not have any, any idea that it was about you know, totalitarian governments and fascism. I just thought it was a cool story about, you know, hardworking animals and some mean pigs. But no, there's a lot more symbolism there and they're, they represent people. So yeah, I, that one kind of led into 1984, which I read for the first time, I think in eighth grade and maybe again in high school. I've read it so many times now and I read it in college and that was the first time I really understood what it was about. And I, I, to this day, that book still serves as like a reference point in a lot of my thought process when it involves authority because it's just so relevant to so many of the things that affect the way we live today. The things about that book that were really sticky in my brain were like the Ministry of Truth, which is a government organization that exists to update history books. And the main character, I believe that's where he started was working in the Ministry of Truth, and he would just change stuff to make sure it fit the current party narrative. Sounds an awful lot like Twitter. <laughs> there are just very many parallels, and or not, I mean, technologically on top of that, like the telescreen. They had these big screens. Everyone had these big screens in their living rooms that would like took up a whole wall, and it was uh, cameras. They was, it was a TV. It was basically a, a flat-screen TV with a camera so that the government could spy on you and you could watch TV and be entertained. Anyway, I also liked a lot of Ray Bradbury stuff, Fahrenheit 451. That's always a classic. And The Illustrated Man is one of my favorite books ever. That's like a collection of short stories, but a lot of them are pretty futuristic. And a lot of stuff in the futuristic vein has a lot to do with genetic engineering and changing humanity in some controllable way and I think that's something that has always appealed to people who are thinking about the future we see that evolution occurs and we see that we're moving in some direction so it's a natural impulse to want to direct that but now that we actually have the technology to do that it's become pretty fucking scary because we can do all kinds of stuff and there's so much going on in that DNA in the genome that is not active. So I'm worried that people are going to start just flipping switches and end up triggering stuff that we don't really want. You know, like you're trying to get super speed and you end up growing teeth out of your back or anything. Who knows? You don't really know. You want laser eyes and then you, you end up with four arms shooting out your asshole. You just don't know. We have all that stuff, that extra stuff they used to call junk DNA, unexpressed genetic code. And it's, it's just backup stuff. It's the stuff you haven't needed yet. So if you start flipping those on, you never know what's going to happen. I don't know. just sounds, sounds risky. I hope they're really doing their research. And speaking of research, 
this guy I interviewed today has definitely done his. His book was very thoroughly researched. A lot of the stuff seemed very legit. Honestly, I'm not a scientist, so everything I say in that regard is, is from a, a hobbyist point of view. I've studied some stuff, but then I'm, I don't work in these fields, so there, I, have, I have no professional credentials. So don't, don't take any of this stuff I'm saying as gospel. You know, I'm just doing my best to figure shit out, too. So in the book, the specific kind of genetic engineering that Mark Ryle wrote into the book was age decoding. He wrote in that they had figured out how to stop aging and then eventually to reverse aging. So he just picked one specific thing and he ran with that and it built a story around it. And it was pretty good. So <clears throat> I have not finished the book, but the parts I have read, the part I have read the first half or so has been pretty good. Really, I think it's intended to send a message to the world to say like, hey, let's be very thoughtful about what we're doing here. We're fucking around with genes, trying to change our code like that's just risky but it is pretty cool and it is i do find it very exciting and i do think they should do it the government should pay for it so i don't know i'm on both sides you know i'm a i'm a nervous nelly but also i'm i'm a liberal lorraine i I want that shit to happen i think go for it you can find ramble by the river on instagram at ramble by the river on facebook at ramble by the river and on twitter at ramble river pod If you need to contact me for guest suggestions or any kind of questions, go to the show notes, all that information, and all the useful links that are mentioned in the show can be found in those show notes. I have to humbly request that you please go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts, and please leave a five-star review. It takes less than five minutes, and it really makes a big difference. Not only does it help the algorithm to know that the show is good and that they should start sending it to more people, But it also just makes me feel good. Helps me know I'm doing something that people actually appreciate. So I want to keep producing quality content for you guys. So I really appreciate it if you can help me out and go hit that subscribe button. Like it. Share it. Help me to spread it around. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it so much. I cannot express my gratitude enough. I love you guys. And I think let's just get to the show, right? So without further ado, please give it up for the one and only. Mark Ryle. Say it with your chest now, say it with your chest now. I'm young, I'm free, can't nobody take me here and now. It's my time to ride it out. It's my time, it's my time, it's my time to ride. Okay, we're on, and we are waiting for Mark Ryle. Here's Mark's bio. It took some struggle and two career changes before Mark Ryle discovered his genuine self as a teacher. He went to teach economics and mathematics. He also loved coaching cross-country. He also began painting, specializing. Ah, here he is. Hello, Mark. I was just reading your bio. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to Ramble by the River. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, am I late or no? Not at all. Not at all. So this is the third Zoom interview I've done on, on the podcast, and I'm still getting used to it. So bear with me. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's a struggle. It's, a, it's a quite a bit different than having someone in person, uh, just as far as get, getting a good flow. Uh, 
So uh, we'll we'll get it going. But okay, well I'll, I'll be patient. No problem. And I mentioned that I'm at a I'm up north here, so I'm on a wireless. I did try a podcast a, a few days ago, and it worked well on Zoom. So it should okay. be all right. But uh, hey, we'll do what we can. If if we have connectivity issues, we have connectivity issues. I had quite a few yesterday, but we're gonna do the best we can. And I'm okay. I'm uh, planning on doing an hour. If that if you got that in you, that would be perfect. Okay. Um, uh, and is it video? Is it video too, or just audio? The podcast is released just as audio. Uh, so first of all, welcome to the show. Welcome to Ramble by the River. It's a pleasure to have you here. I was just reading over your bio, and it looks like you have quite the career in education. And we have had quite a few mm-hmm. teachers on the show, and we love we love teachers. So do you want to start off just by telling telling the audience a little bit about yourself and who you are? personally and professionally? Sure. So you mentioned teaching uh, and that's, I just retired from teaching. I I was um, teaching first college physiology labs and biomechanics labs at University of Waterloo. And then I taught, I went into full-time high school teaching economics and mathematics. And I've been doing that for about 25 years. So I just retired from that. And um, yeah, I love the I love the job. I loved. Um, I felt like I was learning a lot as I was working with young adolescents, and I also really enjoyed the coaching side of it. So, I got into cross country running and track and field. Those were my main uh, sports for coaching, and what a what a nice ride that was. Trying to build up a build up a team and get the enthusiasm on that front. Yeah. How long so, did you do that for? Uh, the cross country. The coaching. Uh, yeah. I think I did that. Yeah, for about, uh, I, I coached golf and an academic trivia thing before, and also hockey, which is pretty big up oh. here. Um, but then I got into the running. Surprisingly, I got into it about 15 years ago when my daughter, who, who back then was eight, decided she wanted to go running on the streets on her own. And I thought, well, why do you want to run? Why do you have this innate desire to run? And um, I thought it was a little odd for an eight-year-old. And why do you want to time yourself going around the blocks and all that? So I had to go with her, sort of uh, supervise. And, and so I put on some running shoes and jogged with her. And it was pretty easy when we started because she was only eight. And uh-huh. uh, But within about a few years, I, I couldn't keep up with her. <laughs> so uh, she... she still runs competitively. She's now 23. But she got me into the, the um, running. And then I started training myself and competing and I got into triathlon. So, um, it's sort of a oh, cool. funny how everything starts from one little, yeah. And then you never know. And then of course I started coaching because I became very interested in this whole thing. And I was also coaching my daughter. She was never a member of the track club. I coached her, but she ran for her school. So she, she got the team aspect at her school. So oh, cool. the whole thing just started with a couple steps, a couple steps from an eight year old. Yeah. I actually have and, a similar uh, yeah. story with my daughter. She's started, really young and she's only 10 now and she's been running for half her life and she competed in the junior olympics last year or the year before last and it's been it's a great thing to do with your kid especially like as a dad with a daughter some of the sports wouldn't be available to you to do with them but running is one that you really can she actually just beat me for the first time just just like two weeks ago Uh like actually beat me in a in how, old, how old is she now she's 10 <laughs> yeah but she's fast she could run so, a mile uh, in just a little over six minutes so it's, 
she works hard. That's very good. Yeah, that she's going to be, uh, she is already a good runner. And then if she's competitive, you might have to do what I do, which is sort of guide her along and make sure she doesn't overdo it because they're so young, right? And uh, that's yeah. the, the uh, issue there with my daughter, but she's so motivated, you just want to run more and more. And I said, no, no, you're only going to run four times a week or whatever. And we're not going to overdo it. You're not going to get injured. And so I'm burned I was constantly out. trying to reel her in through the whole process. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so just like we've already been doing so far, this is great how we kind of start off uh, talking about track and we go in to talk about our daughters, just how it's a it's a very real conversational flow. That's what I'm kind of going for. So it, while we're talking, feel free to, to branch off into tangents. Uh, feel free to talk about other things that we may not have even expected to talk about. That's That's exactly what we're looking for. I'm trying to create some content that's not exactly what would have been on every other podcast. And usually that just comes from just relaxing and just being yourself talking about whatever comes to mind. But yeah, so we've got, you're a track coach, you love education, you're into mathematics and economics. Were you really good in school with math and that kind of thing? You seem like a technically minded person. Yes, I was. Uh, I'm not trying to boast too much, but I was always taught boast away. Friends. This is the place to do it, Mark. In science front, I was always highly touted. And actually, that became a bit of an issue for me because um, it looked like as I was coming out of high school, going to university, uh, that I was going to be an engineer or something like that. And I know I remember my mother just before I was headed off the university telling my neighbor, and I was standing there with him. She was just very proud of me. She said, you know, Mark's heading off to engineering at University of Waterloo. And the neighbor said, turned to me and said, Mark, uh, you've got a maid. And I, I it, it, that sort of hit me funny because I knew deep inside that I was actually on shaky grounds that I wasn't sure I really wanted to, to be a professional engineer or scientist, but I knew I was expected to do that. And so I did go off to, to uh, Waterloo. And within a year, I did drop out of that program. I was doing very well. I'm not boasting, but it was the top engineer in the program after one year. And the I, I told my advisor that I was going to leave the program. And then they had me interview with the chair of the Department of Engineering. And he want, just wanted to know what, why. And I said, I, I'm interested in studying other things. I'd like to study biomechanics. I'd like to study psychology. And I can't do that inside this engineering program. It's just not very many electives or anything, right? So he understood. He, he was pretty good about it. And off I went and I ended up finishing there with a science degree and lots of different courses. I think it was a good decision for me, but it was a tough decision because you're sort of expected to, you know, like I'd say to your listeners out there, sometimes you're good at things, but that actually may not be what's the best role for you. And your guide will tell you. And uh, I knew that I had to do something else, probably something more with human beings, and, you know, so instead of just studying things, just uh, more people. So I actually had, a pretty similar college experience. So I went to school studying psychology and I, I did fairly well in my programs and I enjoyed it quite a bit, but I started towards the end of my degree to feel like it was a little bit too human. Like it relied yes. too strongly on people's opinions and their intuitions. And it was so flimsy. It didn't, it didn't feel like solid footing that I could build from. Because it, it felt like any any moment, some new pop psychologist could come on the scene and change everything. And then all of a sudden, everyone doesn't believe the same things anymore because it's all based on just people's collective opinions. And I know it's 
I know it's a soft science that's based on evidence and observational studies and things like statistical evaluations and not not necessarily off of hard quantitative data. But yeah, so that's interesting. But I, I totally relate to that feeling of like, I like this, this is good, but it's it's not the thing. And did you did you find yeah, yourself so, feeling the opportunity cost of like you're missing opportunities to to get into oh, stuff yes. that you might actually really love? Yes. Oh, yeah. So it actually happened to be again about a year, a year later. I went into a master's in science, and the same thing happened. I just wasn't in the right spot. So at that point, I I really thought carefully about it. It was almost embarrassing because I'm supposed to here. I'm supposed to be a good student. My parents are proud of me. Um, I've got two sisters. Uh, well, we're all pretty good students, but you know, I'm off and I'm now out West in Vancouver studying. I've got a great scholarship. And again, I just sort of walked away from it. The thinking, I do not want to be a full-time scientist. And I, I admired the scientists out there. They do great work, but it just wasn't for me. I remember thinking back then, is there something wrong with me? Uh, why am I doing this? And um, it, was, it was, I was very lonely actually, because I didn't really want to talk to my family about it because I was embarrassed and I didn't really... I, you know, I just moved out there, so I didn't know too many people out there. So it was a tough decision. I remember writing a little letter to myself, and in the letter I said uh, to go back into the lab and to continue would be a um, secure but cowardly move. And that's that sort of strikes right at the heart of it. Uh, I could have the security, and I could do that, but I need to be brave and find out what, what I'm, I'm supposed to do. So with serendipity, what happened is right at, within a week of doing that, I was teaching some labs out there to make ends meet. And so I was teaching physiology labs at the university. And I don't remember the young fellow's name, but it was one of the students just after class said to me, you know, you're really helping me with this course because you're good at explaining things. And that really struck me, that one little compliment. And that's when I started thinking about maybe teaching as a, as a serious career. So you realize that your skill may be communication. Yeah, explaining things, reaching out to things, clarifying things. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I noticed that as I was reading your book, that a lot of the stuff is quite technical, but it, it comes across in, in pretty layman terms. Like it was, it was not hard to understand a lot of the, the concepts that you were talking about. How did you start first getting into the technical side of aging? Yeah, sure. So that actually relates also going back to my daughter running and all that. So she got me into running. I was then competing and at the World Triathlon Championships where I represented Canada. I got seriously into triathlon. I, I've noticed that in my age group, which is 60 to 65, they're very serious competitors. A lot of them are retired and they have tons of times on their hands. So they might do two or three workouts a day, biking, swimming, running, stretching, whatever, strengthening. And I noticed that the ones who were at the upper end of that age group, so say 64 or 65, would, would say that, I remember even a conversation in a bar between two of them, the guy who was 64 said to the one who was only 60, he said, you have a huge advantage over me. You're four years younger. And I thought, whoa, are they that fine-tuned that they can actually feel the difference of that four years from 60 to 64? And they are, they actually are. So because your performance and your potential does drop off with aging. So I became quite intrigued by this concept and uh, that conversation. So I started just sort of reading about it. I was interested in the idea of physiology, aerobic capacity and decline with aging. And I noticed that there was a lot of fairly serious research going on in that field. And it surprised me. And there were even researchers, we can get into it if you want uh, later in this conversation, about stopping 
the aging process or seeing aging as a disease that must be eradicated. Like and David Sinclair, is that kind of the type of stuff? Have you are you familiar with his work? A good example. Yeah, yeah, he's a great example because he um, David Sinclair for the listeners is uh, is at Harvard. And although I believe he's from Australia himself, but he's studying reverse aging and he's using dogs right now. And he's focusing on genetic engineering, but not changing the actual DNA code, but changing the epigenome around the DNA, which sort of is how the DNA is expressed. So he's not changing the code. He's changing how it's expressed in your body. So he believes that as you grow older, parts of your DNA that make you young become sort of shut off or toned down. And he's trying to enliven them again and bring them back. And he believes he can reverse aging. Wow. What, what do you think about that? Is that something that seems possible? Well, they're, they're definitely circling the wagons. Him, there's another fella, Stephen Horvath from UCLA, is also looking at reversing the aging biological clock, he calls it. Um, and then the uh, Shinya Yamanaka from Kyoto University has done a lot of work with stem cells and making cells more youthful using stem cells. And then there's even George Church from Harvard who claims that he, he thinks he'll stop aging by 2030, which is only eight years away. Now, that blows my mind. And he thinks he doesn't want to just stop aging. He wants to stop all of the diseases associated with, clearly associated with it, like Alzheimer's and, and cancer and whatnot. So these are serious researchers. And uh, I don't know, like, uh, I'm not a genomicist and I'm not a, a leader in that scientific field, but it seems like a lot of very strong researchers are, are talking about uh, stopping or reversing aging. And they're, you know, in my book, it, it happens in the year 2054. Um, I don't know if you've reached that part where they, they actually announced the Nobel Prize for the, the heroine in the book, Dr. Frida. Yeah. And she solves aging using CRISPR technology. I'm about a third of the way through the book. And so far, it's great. It's, it's really piqued my interest because it, it does seem like it follows right along the lines of reality and that this is a, a future that we could actually see. Yeah, that's when I wrote the book, I actually wrote it to try to forecast the future. So I wasn't trying to do some crazy, you know, drug induced science fiction where I'm creating other planets and people and societies and aliens. No, I was actually trying to forecast where I think we will be. It's, it's called sometimes speculative fiction or um, hard science fiction where you use the current technology and science and you just sort of move it forward as best you can. So I, yeah, I really wrote it to try to forecast where I think we will be. Uh, yeah. Are you a fan of speculative fiction and dystopian novels? I'm not a huge science fiction. Uh, I, I read I, I read a fair amount and I have read some sci-fi and I do have some favorites and some movies too, but I don't focus in that area. It Told didn't come across 15. as derivative. I didn't feel that it was something that, like, you know, sometimes you'll read a book and, and, it, and it does have a lot of like, the vibe of books that you have already read in the same vein. This one did not have that. It felt like something that was very original. Okay. Well, that's great. Great to hear. And I never thought I would have written uh, for, well, for one thing, a novel. And secondly, I, a fiction, science fiction, never would have imagined that would be me doing that. Yeah. How did you end up actually doing that? How did, how did that come about? So I, I did the first drafts about 10 years ago. And CRISPR was just coming over the horizon at that time. Could you explain and a little bit for the audience what CRISPR again, is? Again, for your listeners, a good CRISPR, and I, I'm not going to give the acronym because it's quite a polysyllabic mess, but it's uh, yeah. it, it's basically the primary premier 
editing technology right now. So they can use this CRISPR mechanism, which is a, it's a biological mechanism to edit uh, people's genes uh, fairly carefully. It's not perfect. So it goes in there and it sort of cuts out or replaces parts of people's DNA. So for example, where it might be very beneficial is cystic fibrosis. Now they haven't done it for this yet, but they're looking at this very carefully or even Huntington's disease, which is a one gene um, disease. Some diseases are fairly simple. They're just in one gene or one area of one gene. So they can go in there and edit it just like they would edit a text that you're writing in a, in a document. And I was just going to ask if that it, was a good analogy, like a, editing a Microsoft document, like it's, a Word document. It's actually document. pretty good. It's pretty good. And, and is it a bacteria? You know it is. It's, so it's related to a defense mechanism for a bacteria. And they, they've used that in their favor to, to, um, to enable it to change parts of your DNA. So it's, a, yeah, so it's pretty cool the way it works and it's not perfect. So it, just like when you edit a document, sometimes you go in there, you change and make a couple other mistakes. Like maybe you cut out a uh, period at the end of the sentence you didn't mean to, right? So there's some uh, inexact sort of side effects to this. And so they are perfecting it. And in the year 2020, just a couple of years ago, the Nobel Prize was given in chemistry to um, two female scientists for their work in really improving CRISPR. That was Jennifer Duna from UC Berkeley and Emmanuel Charpentier from, from Europe, from Planck Institute. So they teamed up and they won the Nobel because they really improved this technology. But, you know, in 10 years, it could be another technology, but they, yes, they can definitely edit your genes like you would edit a text. And it's pretty fundamental because we haven't done this as humans. We've nurtured each other. We've helped each other. We've sort of gone with what we have, but also then used external forces to try to help people like with medicine and diet and, and education and social services. But we haven't changed the fundamental structure of those people. Now, all bets are off. Like now we're going to change the nature, the very fundamental nature of human beings with this technology. So it's almost as if like we've made a leap in how we are going to adapt as if we are changing from a system where we're only using selective breeding to now we're using genetically modified crops. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, natural selection is not going to be, in fact, I don't know if you've reached part of the book where there's some discussion about natural selection and the, the character Jesus, you might've met him, uh, the older man, he starts uh, pontificating about that, uh, how natural selection is going to go the way of the dodo bird. It's going to be unnatural, but very rapid selection. That's actually where I'm at using, right now in the book. Well, and using this technology. And there's even technologies I haven't mentioned in the book, like there's the PGD technology, pre-implementation genetic diagnosis. This is being used right now where you, so basically a couple, let's say they're going to have children, but they're worried about a Huntington's gene they may have in their family. So that gene, they're worried about their offspring. So they can have like several embryos, produce several embryos. And then the, you'd use the PGD to just check each embryo and make sure that the, pick the one that's not going to develop Huntington's, right? Or the two or three that won't. And yeah. then discard, discard the other ones, which some people would have opposition to if you're anti-abortion. But I mean, there is going to be a discarding of um, the embryos, uh, some. And then, uh, so that's... That's genetic screening type stuff, but that's not editing. That's just more checking. Whereas I'm talking more like editing humans after they've been born because they have a, some sort of a ailment that needs treated. You still there? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Are you talking about designer babies? Like where you can like prenatally 
edit the DNA or are you talking postnatal after they're born, you can go in and, and edit the genetic code then? Yeah, it's going to be more after you're born and it's going to be more later childhood adult if they ever really fundamentally change your DNA because they don't want to, if you change a, an egg or an embryo or a sperm, whatever change you make is going to be embedded in the gene pool for humans in the future. Sort of like the Jurassic Park thing where it'll, it'll gotcha. be what's called inheritable. And that's much more dangerous because you better make sure whatever you're doing is not going to have any negative effects because it's going to get into that gene pool, right? So right oh, now- With epigenetics, of- wouldn't it already kind of have that same effect? Even if it's yeah, even if it's postnatal, I think, and I'm not sure on this one, but I think epigenetics is safer because you're not changing the fundamental genetic code, right? Oh, just the expression. So, yeah. So, gotcha. um, but right now, we've already seen in the world. There's a case of a Chinese researcher, He Ku, who is now in jail and and fined because what he did was sort of cross that that moral border where he, much to the disdain of fellow scientists, he changed the embryos for a couple to try to prevent HIV. And he did it. But he wasn't supposed to. Like that was That's frowned upon by most of the organizing bodies and commissions on genetics. So he- uh, Because of the ethical concerns? jailed by the Chinese government. I mean, because that's going to get into the gene pool, right? Whatever he does. Would it be horrible there. if the cure uh, for AIDS got into the gene pool? Well, there's the trade-off, right? So that is going to be the trade-off. So they're going to have to be just be very, very careful on those things. Right now, they're doing more what's called somatic cell gene editing, where they take an adult and then they try to give them a treatment for something, but it doesn't change their reproductive genes. It just changes the genes that are causing the problem. I can give you an example. Um, Actually, just came out. There's a liver condition, I think it's called amyloidosis, and it's basically the liver produces a protein which then causes nerve and heart damage to, to adults. And it's a progressive disease, but it's, it's horrible. I'm not sure the exact biochemistry of it, but basically there is a protein that's produced in the liver. And you do, so what they want to do is they wanted to genetically modify the cells in the liver so they don't produce that protein. So for the first time, I believe, in the history of science, this is just a few weeks ago, they reported this from Imperial College London. They injected a carrier, it'd be like a nanobody carrier to send instructions. They injected in the blood, so it's sort of systemically injected, so it would go all over the body. But this, this chemical was directed to act only in the liver. And then it, and it did so, apparently, and it reduced that that nefarious protein and really helped those four. There were four adult patients. Apparently it it was a wild success, at least to start. Wow. So that's the first time they've been able to just sort of zero in with genetic. And that's good because then it wouldn't get into the uh, reproductive cells or, you know, it would just go where it's needed. So we'll see where where this heads. That's a breakthrough. And I think the company Intelia which was involved with that. Jennifer Dudu won the Nobel Prize, also as part of involved with Intelia. Their stock went up about 40, 45% that day because of the announcement of that study. Wow, that's huge. That's like crypto numbers. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, people listening are thinking, well, there's lots that can be done. Yes, and a lot of it's going to be really incredibly good for 
humanity. Uh, I mentioned cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, Alzheimer's, even psychological conditions such as depression. There's a lot of genetic research going on right now. Uh, for example, in the University of Glasgow, Scotland was looking at chronic pain and depression, and they're isolating the genes involved. And there's even a group in New York, the Icon Institute, that's looking at bipolar and schizophrenia and depression. And they're really zeroing in on the genes. And it's usually not just one gene, so it's more complex. But once they start zeroing in, and then they have these methods of targeting those genes with, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, with the liver disease thing. The possibilities are huge for treating humans who really need help. It sounds like we're on the precipice of a major shift in medical technology. Yeah, it, what, I, do I you see so. us living in a completely different world, maybe 50 years from now? Yeah. And that was sort of the fun of writing the novel. Like, how far is this really going to go? And actually, since I've written it, and I only released it three months ago, a couple of things have come true in the, in the world that made me think, wow, it's already happening now. For example, um, I was reading about Elon Musk's uh, Neuralink technology. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of that company. Oh, yeah. We the... talked about that on the show. Did you? Okay. So I just was listening to it on a podcast driving up here. And I... In my novel, I have this thing called a neuro-integrated transmitter, which sort of is like a smartphone inside your head. And it's I was thinking that might have been based off of Neuralink. Well, I wrote it before. <laughs> I wrote it about six months ago, so and I didn't know about Neuralink. So, but I mean, it's, that just shocked me because I guess the Neuralink goes about a centimeter into the cerebrum, and it's already integrating with about fifty neurons, or you know, not all the neurons, but fifty of them is a lot still. And they're using pigs right now, right? Yeah. That. So, in my novel, it's pretty much integrated, and so people can talk to each other, message each other, or dial up images like, or surf the internet or whatever, just sort of using their head, instructions inside their head. The, the little bit you included about the possibility of the government listening to individuals' thoughts in the future, the, the paranoid guy. Yeah. <laughs> I liked that because that's, that's exactly what people would do. The first, I mean, that's what people will do. This, this will happen. It will, it will come to fruition eventually. I don't know it, what adoption will be like because I imagine the technology is probably already here. I'm sure Google has all kinds of integrated wearable technology that would almost work just as well. But the, uh, the ability to communicate without really having to do anything physically, I imagine yeah. we're not far from that. And it's going to be really easy to be paranoid that somebody's tapping in. I think so. You know, in the novel, there's a little bit of this uh, government conspiracy earlier on like there and then later on there's a larger um, conspiracy i won't give away too much about it and i think you might just be reading about it just some mentioning of it in the novel but it's the idea of some genetic engineering that changes the psychology of people and that becomes the issue in the novel so the That's people in the novel are can stop aging and they're happy to stop aging using genetic engineering but when they go in for the procedure there's a little bit of other <laughs> unscrupulous tinkering that transpires <laughs> and do no spoilers i won't spoil it but i know what you're talking about and uh it that sounds like something that would be very easy to if i was a, I, actually do you mind if i share what that what that thing is or is that going to mess up the book no go go ahead because it comes in pretty early in the yeah book. so they figure out a way to remove uh, people's ability to dissent from authority so that right. people are just easy going go with the flow and it's it reminded yeah. me a little bit of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Everybody takes Soma. Everybody pops a pill and everybody feels good. They think of it as a utopian future, even though they are in a 
full on dystopia. And but they're fine with it because they're medicated. But that's kind of what it seemed like. Yeah, it was right. kind of to smooth over everybody's edges. Yeah. And I, I call it the propensity to dissent. One of the scientists working in the government had been working with the uh, heroine, Dr. Frida. In the novel, she has nothing to do with this. She's being captured and actually put underground. So she's not doing this nefarious stuff. But she had worked with this other scientist on the propensity to addictive behavior, which I, I imagine they're probably studying right now. And then there's the propensity to dissent or criticize. And it, it's only a propensity. I call it a propensity because I think these things like creativity, intelligence, uh, motivation are not going to just be one gene, simple solutions, but they feel like they can tame it by uh, really dampen it, I guess is a better word, using genetic technology. Yeah. And that seems like something that is pretty science fiction-y, but really not all that crazy. But it is. And there's a, there's a quote in the novel, if, if you don't mind me reading it here. It's nice oh, for please. readers to sometimes get a little couple quotations. There's a fellow named Ahmad who was married to the heroine I mentioned who's captured, Dr. Frida who invents age decoding. Now, Ahmad, he's working for the government. He has good intentions, but he's working for the government. And he sort of figures out what's going on because he reaches high enough levels that he's privy to the information about this propensity descent stuff. So he's pretty much horrified when he finds out what's really going on. And he says, all age decoded humans have been set without them knowing to a minimal level of potential descent. That is to a high compliance with rules of authority, rendered sycophants. In many societies and political systems, this can happen using means such as dictatorship, propaganda, materialism, magic, or religion. But in this case, it happened through genetic engineering. That is a great quote because it really it speaks to the issue that there are lots of ways to control groups. Precisely. And I don't want to... I don't want to be too negative on this. And I think I've started off by being pretty positive implications in genetic engineering. But as with any technology, we're going to have to watch this one very carefully, harness it for the positive. And if people, you know, just think of what happened with nuclear technology, it's done a lot of great things for the world. Here in Ontario, we use nuclear for something like uh, 50% of our electricity generation, which is one of the best in the world. Um, but we, we know that nuclear has caused all sorts of headaches, you know, nuclear weapon. The bomb is actually used a couple of times and enormous amounts of money and resources put into nuclear warheads. And so any technology, even the information technology, you know, we see some nefarious actors out there who you know cyber terrorists or uh, ransomware people who use it negatively but overall i would say it's probably helped our society's information technology so mm -hmm. just gonna have to watch this very carefully Maybe and that's the double-edged nature of all new technology right we got to make I sure it that is. it doesn't fall into the wrong hands and i mean a great example right now is bitcoin because one of yeah. the main things that is keeping it from mass adoption is this kind of semi-true semi-false to be taken with a grain of salt uh statement that it's used for nefarious activities and criminal acts and you know that's probably partially true uh, but it's it's keeping people from wanting to really engage in the technology. And it's it seems to be like that with most new things that are going to shake up the existing order. It is. And if I could put a plug in for one of our Canadian researchers up here. Yeah, um, sure. I just read her book. It's a fantastic book. Now, it's, it's nonfiction. Most of the stuff written has been nonfiction, uh, seriously, on this genetic engineering. But her book is called Altered Inheritance. 
And she, her name is Francois Bailis. And she's from Dalhousie University and on the East Coast, uh, Halifax, Canada. And Harvard University Press just released that a few months ago, Altered Inheritance. I read it and um, she talks a lot about these moral, ethical, thorny issues that we're going to have to face. And, you know, her basic thesis is that we need to just involve as many people as possible, not just scientists, not just politicians, but people, business people normal citizens, athletes, because, you know, this is going to start happening in sports too. They're going to be genetic engineering athletes, um, coaches, normal people, medical people, doctors, physicians, researchers, all of them are going to have to be involved. This is a fundamental shift and it's, it's exciting. And we need to get, have a, she calls it a societal consensus. So really get everybody involved. And um, is that just to establish what the world is going to be like from now on without blind spots? Yeah, exactly. And she says it's not going to be easy. She she talks about all the commissions and things that have been set up. There have been committees and commissions and whatnot. They can make all the statements they want about, you know, use genetic engineering this way. But then again, you see what happened with the one Chinese researcher I mentioned who crossed the moral border. Um, but she said, we still need to do our best. In forest, I would use the analogy of steroids. You know, we know that athletes are not supposed to be using performance enhancing steroids, but that hasn't stopped a lot of them. And it, it has to be monitored. In fact, the World Anti-Doping Agency, which has, you know, has had a history of dealing with steroid issues, has now a policy on genetic engineering. They wrote it a few years ago. They're ready to take on that. That's going to be the next battle, I think, where people go in and genetic engineering themselves to make themselves stronger, faster, bigger, whatever. So if they're doing that now, 20 years from now, we're going to see a crop of super athletes. Yeah. World Actually, probably less, probably 12 years from now in the, in the gymnast region, at least. It could be. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. That's going to definitely be on the horizon. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. So with all of these new possible cures for diseases and stuff, I feel like we might start having a new issue or a, maybe a new is probably not the right word, but we might start having a more serious issue with population dynamics and cities being overcrowded. Do you think that's going to lead to any major changes in how we live? Yeah. So I had to think that through this huge societal, like not just psychological impact of, you know, okay, now I'm going to live for... I don't know, 2000 years, unless I have a bad accident or something. And you'll see as you get deeper into the novel, some of the people there who are dealing with immortality ennui, I call it, and but also other factors. Uh, and then when they start reversing aging, it gets really bizarre. For example, Jesus there in my book, who's a, a Buddhist, he's 76, but he this, he's going to start reverse aging. So he's thinking, well, if I reverse age, my granddaughter, who he's very close with, who he brings up, who's 25, I'll be the same age as her in 50 years. We'll both be 25 years old and just bizarre stuff like that. So, but on the population front, that's not now more societal you're going to have huge impacts because, you know, population controls can be more difficult. So you're going to have to limit um, the new people. You're not going to have old people if you're reverse aging. So pretty well, everybody's going to be 25, 30 years old, that sweet spot, whatever they pick, they target, they can target it. And you won't have many young people because nobody's dying. So you're going to have to control population and you won't have many old people. So I think we would lose as a society that full intergenerational connection, like grandmother, grandfather, son and daughter, and all that, all those relationships between generations are going to be very rare. I think that would fundamentally disrupt the psychology of human beings. 
I'm just thinking of that as how it would play out in, in real life, in real time. I, I think that would forever change the way that humans consider themselves in terms of space and time. That's what we use as a yardstick. Generations is what we use to, to make sense of where we are in history. That's going to be a major difference. I think it's going to be a huge difference. And there's a character in my novel, you've met Simena, who mm -hmm. uh, early in the novel, she ends up losing, well, she thinks she's lost her mother, who is really being taken away secretly by the government. They fake her suicide, her mother's suicide. And her father leaves because of all that. So she's ended up abandoned. She ends up being brought up by this fellow, this older man, Jesus, who's her grandfather. But anyway, she develops a psychological disorder, trying to sort of compensate, I guess, for losing her mother, her father, and also losing so much else. And there's a quote here I'd like to share with your listeners. This is Simena. Now she's 25 years old. She's, she's age decoded and, and fixed and she's at hot. 25 years old. And she's, uh, she is uh, hot. I'm not sure why I put that in. It just, it, it's, it's it made it better. It's sort of like, she, yeah, it, it, well, because she meets that young man, Jason, at the beginning, he's sort of like a 16 year old and she's really hot, 25 year old. And, mm -hmm. and, but it ends up being a very platonic, uh, but yeah, right. His first impression, wow, she's so beautiful, right? But inside, she's not so beautiful. And actually, she has a um, psychological compensation thing where she gnaws away. This young man noticed that she has like this oven mitt type thing covering one of her hands. That's the mm -hmm. only, she's beautiful, but she had her one hand, almost like an Achilles heel thing, but her hand is covered by uh, this mitt. And uh, he never finds out, the reader finds out what's really going on. She's saying to herself, here I sit gnawing pathetically. So she's gnawing away. She takes the mitt off. She, she has this, like some people cut themselves. She gnaws away at her uh, wrist and her uh, bones in her hand. Um, she says, here I sit gnawing pathetically, a sliver of one generation isolated, infertile, unable to relate or reach out. I'm stuck in one egotistical dimension. I'm alone. What's it like to nurture a baby, to bring up a child, to see a walk and talk for the very first time? What's it like to listen to a son or a daughter, tell stories about school and friendships and to grow old, witnessing them maturing into adults and companions and caregivers for me? What's it like to fully experience the cycle of life with loved ones? I'll never know the joy of being a real mother like women were in the old days. If I did come to know it, it would be in some artificial way, not naturally. So that gnawing on the hand is so, the way that that's expressed, that that longing and that loss is expressed physically. Yes, it's some sort of an adaptation. And there's even a scene later on where I know I'm reading a lot from the novel, but no, it's, it's great. Go ahead. The great thing about science fiction is you can actually feel and see and imagine these things happening. It's so much better than reading a not uh, well, it's not better, but it's it's different than reading a nonfiction about genetic engineering because um, it puts so, you there. Yeah, it puts you there, and you can really get inside the heads of people and see how they might react to this. As I mentioned, young people would be very rare, so. People do go and watch young people, but it's not their own young people. There are some young people. And when they're playing the game, people can pay, adults can pay to adopt a child for the game and cheer for them almost like they lose their real son or daughter. And people pay for that because there's something lacking there and they want to embrace that. So they go and, and here's a game. And in this during this game where the adults are watching these kids, these rare kids, 
beside the soccer pitch is a cemetery with a lot of old gravestones and all that. So you have to picture the game, the pitch, and then the cemetery with all tons of stones, old stones. So during the game, this is the narrator talking. During the game, those old stones stood as one in the background, not in opposition to the youthful game in the foreground, but as a subconscious set of spirits gathered to follow a beautiful game, to worship the litheness and exuberance of the playing children, and to earn some respect in return. That respect came in the form of furtive glances from the young girls and boys in the direction of the stones, as if to say, we know you're there, we can see you when we want to, and we very much know what you're about. At this boundary between the cemetery and the soccer pitch, the old and the young, the two forlorn groups of this new world, whispered unified statements and made mutual offerings. What, what is the symbolism there? I, I like it, but I'm not sure exactly what that symbolism is supposed to imply. It's pretty direct. You have the old, which is the stones in the cemetery, and the young, which is the kids. And they're both very rare now sort of reaching out to each other, um, as they call it here, mutual respect. And that, of course, is lost in the society. It's just like sort of a tangent now in the society. They're almost drawn to each other because they know that they're both, I call them here, the narrator calls them, the two forlorn groups. Mm-hmm. And then trying, in the current to, state of things, it's just yeah, it's almost as if everyone's frozen in a moment. And you yeah, don't have and that most people spectrum. Are, yeah, most people are 25 years old just watching the game, right? Those are the two groups just eking out in existence, the young people and the gravestones. It would be a world that would be changed. And my my novel, I look at the aging because that's one of the so-called diseases that is seriously being looked at and they're trying to conquer. Do you think of aging uh, as a disease? I don't, but many people do. Um, Aubrey de Grey, for example, from the United States, uh, George Church, I mentioned, they see it as a disease and it must be eradicated. They have no reservation with stopping it and and letting humans become essentially immortal. That sounds so dangerous. <laughs> How do you feel? Do you, do you think? I don't. I can tell that you, you, you don't. I don't think of aging as a disease. Uh, again, I'm not a scientist, but I've, I think about existential issues a lot. And I really think that there's something to us being an animal. And I, I think that if we remove that mortality aspect from our being, then we're going to be less animal and and more. I, I hate when people compare humans to gods because it sounds so lofty and it we're we're not gods. Yes, uh, but that's almost what it seems like it's trying to do is is to elevate us to above the rest of the natural world. And that's what it would do. I mean, there there essentially are already creatures that by our time scale are essentially immortal like bacteria and fungi and you know trees things like that just by far and away outlive us that are established by the time we get here and are haven't changed that much by the time we die and we have control over those things because we have such active brains we can we know how to cut down a tree we know how to kill a bacteria but if we have all those skills to control our environment and on top of that we're immortal we're going to ruin this place it would be a huge shift in, like I said, the psyche of humans, but also the the society of humans, humanity itself. It would be a huge shift. So I, in my book, I just went for that one because that was one physical change that I thought was 
pretty neat and and the and and I, I mentioned the psychological one because um, there's a lot of research in genetic engineering on on psychological things like depression, schizophrenia. And I've mentioned a few, and and so anything anything physical or mental that has any genetic basis in our DNA structure is fair game. And is I there think any the kind of psychological, especially the younger listeners? Oh, I was going to say, are are there really any kind of psychological constants that don't have a genetic basis? I think everything has some genetic basis and also some environmental basis. It's sort of a combination of the two, right? But mm -hmm. as I said, we've been focusing on the environmental, nurturing each other. Now the whole other side is controllable, but just opening by us up too. So it just changes the whole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, did you ever see the movie Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd? It was a comedy, really, but it was about. Um, I think I did as a <clears> nature kid. versus well, nurture. It's a could it's you a refresh funny movie. my memory? Really recommend it to people. Yeah, it's a, it's about you know what makes somebody successful. Is it your nature, your your inner structure, or is it your nurture, the, the environment you're given in? So Eddie Murphy is um, and Dan Aykroyd are, are used as the two specimens in this, and and uh, basically Eddie Murphy seen uh he was seen as someone disadvantaged he was from the african-american population and you know so they plucked them off the streets and they said look if we give this guy the right environment um i bet we can make him success as successful as dan Aykroyd." and dan Aykroyd. so they swap him dan Aykroyd, into eddie murphy's position they put him out on the streets and they sabotage his life and they take eddie murphy and they move him into dan Aykroyd's privileged position and then they try to see if he does become successful. So it's nature versus nurture. It's a funny movie, but it's actually got a pretty strong message. Um, I really highly recommend it. They're great actors, the two of them too. So and, hilarious uh, too. Um, I won't tell you how it turns out. Yeah, it's great. It's it's there's some really funny moments, but uh, it's a one dollar bet between these two other rich guys saying, "I think we can turn this guy Eddie Murphy into a successful corporate CEO, and and, and we could ruin this other guy just by changing their environments." Hey, Mark, uh, we're getting a little bit of also back, have background their... noise on your mic. Could you make sure your mic's not bumping into nope. stuff? The nature versus nurture, actually not nature versus, but the nature and nurture debate or discussion, whatever you want to call it, is, I think, a fundamental one that everybody should understand because it's not necessarily, it's like, it's not which one of these things is determining who you become. It's how these two things interact to create each individual. And I think that like, with the exactly. example you just provided, you could pull Eddie Murphy out of the ghetto and drop him into a privileged position, but he's going to bring all those experiences from his upbringing with him to that new position. They're going to inform yeah. how he reacts to everything, and they've already shaped him, and they will continue to shape him along with the, the stimuli from his new environment. People want to think of it as like a... They want to explain the individual as they are now in this exact moment. And so they only look at everything leading up to that point. But really, we're, we're dynamic creatures that are living in an environment that has a time element. So it, it's never really that useful to explain just from this one moment. You got to consider both directions in time. Yeah, that's very well said, Jeff. I like that. Yeah. So um, in the end... I, I simplified it in my novel. I tried to focus on one physical thing, although it's a complex thing called aging, and then one psychological thing, the propensity to descent. I could have brought in all sorts of other variables and manipulations. Why did you select the propensity uh, for maybe descent? Maybe that would be good for a sequel. I think every 
fiction novel needs a scandal of some sort. So that provided a nice scandal. And it's a, it's a complex environment. Genetic engineering involves big corporations, big governments, but also small teams of researchers and scientists, universities. It's actually a, a quite a hodgepodge of actors. And so I wanted to bring in some potential scandal there on the sort of a political front. And I noticed my book, if you look at some of the Amazon ratings and whatnot, it seems to be doing... Like I never thought I was writing a book about politics, but there's actually a fair amount of politics in it. And it's doing fairly well on the political fiction front. That sounds like it's upsell. I guess, yeah. Politics is an area that most people are definitely afraid of. Yeah. So there is some politics involved in, you know, setting up this world government, managing age decoding, and then this corruption that happened. And then people within, I call it the authority. It's called the authorities of zone one. There's zone one and zone And then the people within there, like this Ahmed fellow I mentioned, who find out what's really going on. And then, you know, good people in a bad system. And so there is some political give and take in the novel and definitely some ethical, philosophical dissertation by especially by this older fellow jesus and then there's the all the science involved with the lead character uh, the heroine so i have a question that maybe you could shed a little light on it's a two-part question first of all what is biological aging versus chronological aging and what is a telomere so uh biological aging is sort of the physical representation of how old you are so if you could use genetic engineering to stop aging right then nobody would biological age anymore they would stop let's say they're 50 years old and they can be age decoded or genetically modified they would never biologically age beyond 50 and if you could reverse aging they, their biological age would be reduced backwards and how's that year. measured so or defined it's there is no uh, set definition, but it's sort of seen as your physical age in terms of like, right down to, do you have wrinkles? How healthy are your cells? How strong are you? Are, are, have you had any drop off in your capacities? So there's no exact definition I know of, but it's sort of what we think of as, you know, how old are you? If you ask somebody, how old are you? They're sort of like, they give you right now, they give you your biological age, right? Chronological age is different because if you could stop aging, still people do live through time, right? So their chronological age would continue as they experience life further, their age continues to go up. So in my novel, one of the characters there says, she's 25, that's Simana. She says, my my biological age is 25, but my chronological age is 200 and something or whatever it was. So that's the difference. The telomeres, I don't know a lot about that, but they, apparently they are a structure embedded in, in the edge of the DNA that... They shrink as people do get older. And that's one of the physical aspects of DNA that seems to uh, show in, as people get older. And a lot of people think that the elasticity or the length of the telomeres is pretty important in terms of how the DNA can express itself and how old you are. Okay. So it shows the wear and tear on your DNA. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Um, I just thought of something that just randomly popped into my head. So in the Old Testament of the Bible, it talks about people living hundreds of years. Oh, yeah, sure. And I, I, I mean, I grew up reading the Bible as a kid and just never knowing what the hell to make of that. First of all, I, I don't even know if, if you're religious or what, it doesn't matter. But in historical terms, was there ever a time when people lived much, much longer than we live right now? I don't believe so. I think the average age of humans has gone up and it 
back going backwards back because largely because of medical advances and the lack of medical treatment and also more warfare and whatnot yeah <laughs> uh, lots back, of things that kill you back, back then the, you know going back the life expectancy is much lower but i am i'm not i'm spiritual i'm not uh i was brought up a catholic and i did go to jesuit high schools and actually my mother was a catholic nun at one point I, that would be another podcast to try to explain where i came from if my mother was a catholic nun but um in brief she she left the uh convent and then met my father and they and they're still married actually after 67 years my parents doing wow well. that's a long uh, time I, a yeah job. shout out to my parents you know to all those parents out there who are uh, who are together and and have done a great job you know bring up the children i have two sisters um but uh i do like to quote c.s lewis who some of your some of your listeners may know him he's a spiritual he was a religious writer. man um, yeah. he's he was good because he was an academic but he could also reach out to average folks with his writing and he wrote and i found this so prophetic he wrote this book called the abolition of man so he's already thinking of like whoa what's going to happen to humans what, what will be the impact of humans and the abolition of man in 1943 he wrote i'll quote him here if any one age really attains by eugenics and scientific education the power to make its descendants what it pleases all men who live that after that are patients of that power not stronger so he he, wow, I, I just cannot believe he wrote that 80 years ago. I guess that's 80, 79 years ago. And he even said a little later, man's power over nature turns out to be power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument. Oh, that's good. So he's looking at that pretty seriously. That's, yeah, that's unbelievable. He wrote that so long ago. And he said eugenics, so but that's because eugenics was big in the 40s. He probably meant any kind of genetic control. Yeah. Yeah. And in my book, I call them EU beings. They're called E-U-B-E-I-N-G-S. U beings are people who are age decoded and modified so they don't grow you older. I just come up with the term U being. Yeah, that seemed like the perfect term. Isn't that the Latin root means good? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. I wondered if that was like a nod to eugenics from back then. Yeah, it's the same root. So that's actually an and, interesting uh, point. Eugenics, which is the selective sterilization and selective forced breeding of certain desirable and undesirable populations uh, in an attempt to shape the future population. Eugenics is very frowned upon and it's associated with Hitler and the Nazis and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. So it's, it's, it's <laughs> easy to say that word and people just automatically are repulsed by the concept, but it's not all that much different on a foundational level to what we're talking about here with genetic engineering and designer babies and that kind of thing. And I really think over the long term, genetic engineering would have sim similar, if not way more pronounced effects. Do you think eventually we will look at genetic engineering the way we look at eugenics? I think uh, hopefully we don't look at it as so negatively and you know our, our hair doesn't bristle on the back of our necks. The possibilities here are great, but it's going to be, it won't be, I don't think it'll be like a Hitler-like dictator determining. It'll be more like parents. We just need one charismatic super villain. Different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's going to be, yeah, it's definitely, it's a very similar thing. We're going to be controlling and trying to uh, manipulate the genetics code of individuals and then maybe of the gene pool. And it's going to be decisions that are may depend on the wealth of the people, for example, like when they first come up with something to solve 
um, cystic fibrosis that could be very expensive and maybe just a select few will be able to access that or other enhancement things like um, creativity or intelligence or eye color or you know hair like let's take care of the, the prevention of baldness or I, I just reading something about uh, how they're isolating the genes involved with with obesity uh, a group in the United States just came out with some very interesting stuff on a specific gene. I can't remember the name of the gene that they think is most important. There are other genes, but they think this gene causes people, I would call it the propensity to become overweight. <laughs> and so that's Ackberry and, uh, and a bunch of other American scientists just came out with that a couple of weeks ago. So and is that like a gene related with metab- be, yeah. Oh, sorry. I don't know if it's uh, exactly what the mechanism is, is biochemically, but it's, yeah, it's, it must be related to metabolism and the propensity to become overweight. And I can't remember the name of the gene. I think, it, oh, yeah, I have it here. Um, it's gene, this is not that romantic, GPR75. So they've isolated okay. that gene as very highly linked to um, obesity and explaining why some people tend to put on weight and others don't. I'd like to get back to the ethical concerns around genetic engineering. So I really like that comparison with eugenics because that's something that people have no trouble just with their gut saying, oh, no, that's wrong. And I don't know if that's true. I know that what was done with eugenics back then in the 30s and 40s was horrible. And I I know that that has led to what people think of now. But I think that probably before Hitler got his hands on that technology, before any of that was an issue, people probably had a very similar opinion of what could happen with eugenics as we do right now, as we enter this new age of genetic engineering. What do you think as far as the ethical concerns go? Like you said, with the cost prohibitive nature of a lot of this technology, are we going to see the end of poor people? Because the diseases will get them. Yeah, exactly. In my in my novel, Age Decoded, I make it publicly available, so I don't want that to be a factor. And it's so fundamental that the government offers it free to everyone. It's about a 30-minute procedure. But a lot of these other things, like you say, will not be quite debatable. For example, I was reading about blindness. They are right now using genetic engineering to eradicate certain types of rare blindness. So they literally inject genetic code into the retina. And then it goes to the parts of the eye mechanism that are causing the issues and tries to, tries to genetically modify that part of the eye. That's pretty cool. And, and they're doing that with many other ailments. But blindness, when you think about it, should we as a society say that blindness is bad? Actually, a lot of blind people and blind organizations feel that the idea that blindness is bad should not be embraced. We should, we should think of blindness as, as different. And as a subgroup, that is uh, should be uh, accepted as much as anyone. So should we be trying to eliminate blindness? A lot of even blind people are not in favor of that. Believe yeah. it or not. Yeah, I imagine so because some people probably like the way they are. And do you think Stevie Wonder's faking it? Yeah. <laughs> I no, I don't think so. Now, Eddie Murphy in in Trading Places is faking things. You have to watch that movie. There's a very funny scene where he's pretending that he, <laughs> There's a scene where he's pretending he's like uh, he has no legs and he's on on this board and he's begging for money on the street corner, and then the cops get onto him and they sort of pick him up by the shoulders and lift him up and then his legs follow from beneath him <laughs> and he's <laughs> revealed. But he says he, he's like, oh my god, I can walk again, and he's like. 
putting that on era had great comedy. He didn't know he had legs. That was the heyday of Eddie Murphy. <laughs> but uh, Beverly Hills Cop era. Yeah, but even like say Down syndrome, for example, a lot of people who have Down syndrome children think of them as precious, and yes, they are different, but. We don't want to be um, ostracizing them. And should we be trying to eliminate that type of reality from the human condition? Yeah, that kind of starts to get into the philosophical part of like the yin and yang. Do we need to have some problems in the world so that we know that we have it good? Like if we genetically alter ourselves so much that we get rid of all of the what we consider to be the darker side of our nature. How are we going to know what we even are? Like, how are we even going to know what, how good we have it? Exactly. And what, what will it mean to be human anymore? If you take away, say, aging, and then you try to enhance things like creativity and, and, and intelligence, and then remove things like cystic fibrosis and hunting pins, and then buttress things like uh, courage and, 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 or work ethic. What are, what are we in the end? Are we going to become more robotic, like designed? Is there going to be almost like a convergence between robots, which are becoming more humans and humans, which will become more like robots? Yeah, that's definitely going to be a technology that develops right alongside the genetic changes is integration with machines. Yes. And then, you know, when you get into the, the idea of Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity, which some of your listeners may have heard, heard about where you have artificial intelligence. You mentioned machines integrating with all of that and Neuralinks and it's, it's quantum uh, yeah, genetic engineering is quantum computing, which uh, I have a little bit of fun with that in my novel too. I call it the, I think right now, qubit computing is the big thing where you go to a third dimension rather than having zeros and ones, there's a third dimension, which makes things way more powerful. In my novel, I have dodecabit computing, which which is a, a whole other level of uh, what I call artificial super, super intelligence. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> imagine how powerful, power. trillions of times more powerful. Than so let's think about that for a second. Let's explore that now. idea. So if we have quantum computers that are that powerful, that could sure. you know find patterns and relationships between variables that humans would it'd take humans a thousand lifetimes to even have a hint of where could that lead us let's say we put our entire genome into these quantum computers and say like find relationships look for patterns that are going to lead to superpowers i think that's a very legitimate possibility that we could have that in the next hundred years where we have these computers designing these humans to be like the the ultimate warrior or the ultimate creative or whatever Sure. And right now, the concept of synthetic DNA is out there. So Kevin Davies, who wrote the book, uh, the, I believe it's called Editing Humanity. He has talked a lot about synthetic DNA, how we can design DNA. And if you can imagine a supercomputer doing the designing and then using the synthetic DNA to create these things. And then 3D printing. At them. what point does it become, you know, a machine? Yeah, 3D printing them. So at what point, when when are we not human anymore? So you, you almost, you know, the Turing test for determining if a robot is a human. Uh-huh. We're going to need a test to determine if a human is not a human anymore. I don't It's almost like the converse test to a to the Turing test, the name for that. Maybe that'll be my next novel. Where the, the, where the machine, the artificial super intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, or maybe the novel should be called Convergence because it, I do think there's going to be... Uh, uh, a movement. 
Yeah, so it's interesting times. And uh, for the younger listeners out there, I think you're going to see a lot more of this for like, I'm 61 years old. So I figure I probably won't be around when they do stop and start reversing aging. So maybe that's good. Maybe that's a blessing. I don't know. But uh, for the younger people, I think you're going to see a lot of this and it's going to come full force. It's starting now, a lot of genetic stuff. It's exciting, but I think we need to learn. My job is, is to just educate people as I did myself, uh, sort of self-taught myself this and then think about it, educate, learn about it and spread the word and get people, um, get people embracing this. Not necessarily supporting it, but understanding it and going to project into the future and even get involved maybe as scientists or as members of society and, you know, have an impact. Yeah. All right. My last thing is about aliens. And most people groan when I say this, but I, uh, I feel like we should talk about it because it's in the news and people are, are ignoring it. But the government, the U.S. government has, has released these videos from the Navy of, of these, they're calling them, I think, unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, uh, something like that. But they're what we've always called UFOs. And they're, they're moving at speeds that we've never seen before. They're able to kind of shirk the laws of gravity and everyone's just kind of like, eh, whatever. What do you think about all that? Well, I'm not, I'm, uh, I'm not that much up on the alien thing, but I'm, I will be. I'm the first to admit that um, I'm not anti-mysticistic. Like I, you know, for example, I know many people who claim to have seen even ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, so the concept of aliens is not, I would never throw it out. And um, I, I can't even explain to myself or to others where, where the universe began. Not for that. We obviously as humans can't even. You're still there, Mark? Planets or. Uh, I lost you there for a second. Ghosts here in uh, ghosts and, and other. Uh, yeah. Or, okay. Or ghosts. Um, Sorry, I lost you for a second there, Mark. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. We've done pretty well, eh? Yeah, we've done really yeah, good. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I've gone through all my questions, and this has been really a great, great podcast. Do you have anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap this up? Uh, I would just send a message to your listeners, anybody out there. I never thought I would write even a fiction novel. Never considered it until about 10 years ago. And it's creative, but it's a little later in my life. And to anybody out there, it's it's certainly never too late to express yourself, if especially if you have an important topic that you want to share with others. And you can do it through, you know, music, or, or writing, or poetry, or uh, any various ways. And, and don't be, uh, don't limit yourself. Don't think you're, you know, you're not a creative person or you're not an artist. Uh, you can't paint or whatever. Just give it a try. If, and if it's within you, it will come out and you're never too old or you're never too much one way. Don't let p- people pigeonhole you. You have probably with inside you the capacity to be creative and be an artist and share with others. Very well said. Oh, one more thing. Did you self-publish your book or did you were, were you able to get it worked through a publisher so i tried to get it through a publisher about 10 years ago i had no success because it was difficult to get any agent for new york publisher to read any even a sentence and that's understandable it's a competitive market i'm a first-time author 
So what I did this time when I revamped it, I had a number of editors look at it and just self-published. And self-publishing is a lot more viable now, so it was pretty easy to do that. Uh, although I do have a, a publisher looking at it, so I haven't reached out to them. Just having it out there now, the publishers may come to you and start trying to collaborate with you, and that's probably mm -hmm. what's going to happen eventually. Cool. Well, congratulations on the book. I hope it has a lot of success, and I look forward to getting to finish it. And it's been very nice to meet you and talk to you today. Thank you so much for being on Ramble by the River. Thank you, Jeff. It was, it was humbling and it was an honor to, to join you on your great show. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. Have a good one. Bye. Okay, guys, that was the end of the interview. That was great. That was nice. Mark Ryle, cool guy. Check out his book. It, it is called Age Decoded. It's available on Amazon and it's available through Kindle. That's where I'm reading it right now. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Say it with your chest now, say it with your chest now I'm young, I'm free Can't nobody take me here and now It's my time to run it out It's my time, it's my time It's my time to Yeah.